Hello, and welcome to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gregson. My mission is to find everyday people who are delightful. The people I interview have attractive energy and a positive outlook on life. And I want to give them a platform to share their stories so that others can have hope in the midst of their struggles and see delight in a world that at times can seem gloomy. I will uncover the life experiences of the guests that I interview, which have enabled them to look at life in such an inspiring and delightful way, with the belief that to understand the light, one has to be acquainted with the dark. My guests will share their personal experiences on finding their way through dark and hopeless times and give us a glimpse into the powerful gifts they received in their darkest hours to rise up, take up hope, and view life through new, hope-filled eyes. Is it possible that in our darkest hours, we are given a gift to find the light which leads to our greatest delights? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gregson, and uh, this is going to be a fun one tonight. Now, I've got a old Michigan State basketball player with me tonight who stands at a height of six foot eight. And and Anthony, I got to say that, man, because a lot of, a lot of us men we're lucky if we get over the six foot mark, right? Um, but <laughs> I've got just a really special guest tonight, and it's it's been so fun for me. Um, and Anthony, you'll know what I'm saying here, but connecting to coach Jim Johnson is like a game changer mm-hmm. for so many of us. Um, that man just wants to serve and, and you can see in his leadership and his desire to like lift people up that really he looks at every person he connects with as an opportunity to like help them get to where they want to be, help them be the person they want to be. And when I connected yeah. with Jim and, and obviously coach Johnson, I, he, I, he and I did a, a podcast a few episodes ago. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to his, he shares some very insightful things. Um, but when we finished, he, he mentioned a few people that I need to reach out to. And Anthony Ioni is one of them. And Anthony and his wife live in Livonia, Michigan. And Anthony has a phenomenal story. Um, and I'm going to let him kind of get into his story, but he's got a wife and two sons, uh, Knox, who is six, and Nash, who is three right now. He has a book coming out in September called Centered, which I'm excited about because you also played center in college basketball. So there's some meaning to that, double, double meaning there. And a lot of Anthony's message tonight is going to be on anti-bullying and, and really kind of the experiences that, that he went through as a young man, a young child um, around bullying because he was diagnosed with autism and told all throughout his life that there wasn't going to be opportunity for him. All the no's, you can't do this or you won't be able to do this. And, and honestly, that provided a lot of motivation for, for Anthony and he's done some amazing things. So the other thing too that I want to mention, um, Anthony is, has an anti-bullying initiative called Relentless Tour. So his work is focused on anti-bullying. He works with the Michigan Department of Civil Rights. Uh, he speaks to companies, um, speaks to many different associations about bullying and, and kind of the, the repercussions that bullying can have on people and what it does. Um, but talk about an inspirational story that we're about to hear, folks. Um, grateful to have Anthony with me. And uh, Anthony, people don't want to hear my voice anymore, man. We get tired of that on my podcast. So 
take it away. Tell us about just fill in the blanks. What did I miss? And then let's let's dive in. Well, we can go back to when I was four. Um, that was when I was diagnosed with um, pervasive developmental disorder or PDD-NOS, which is a higher functioning form of autism. Um, and in the early 90s, nobody really knew what autism was during that time period. Nobody knew, really didn't know a whole lot of the characteristics for autism. Uh, there was no awareness for it. There was no path or guidance or resources to help families and individuals who had autism at the time. And the early 90s was more of the ADD, ADHD era for a diagnosis. So me being diagnosed with a type of autism during that time period was very rare. A year later, when I was five years old, a group of doctors and professionals had told my parents in a private meeting that because I have autism, they told my parents I would barely graduate from high school, never go to college, never be an athlete, and I would likely end up in a group institution with other autistic kids like myself for the rest of my life. So from that day forward, that's what kind of like kickstarted everything for me. Um, you know, and my parents being the, you know, phenomenal people that they are, you know, they could have easily just thrown in the towel because again, that was a time period where nobody knew what autism was. They could have easily just thrown in the towel and said, all right, we don't know. When they got to the third doctor, my father got up out of his chair, looked at these doctors and professionals in their, in their eyes and said, look, like I, I respect what you do. I respect your profession. I respect what you're trying to do for us. But let, let me tell you what our expectations are for our son. He's going to go to high school. He's going to graduate. He's going to go to college. He's going to graduate. And he doesn't have to be a student athlete to do all this. Like if the good Lord wants to bless our son with those gifts and abilities, like that's a bonus, but he doesn't have to be an athlete to do all these incredible things that he's going to do down the road. And I remember, you know, when my father, when my father, when my parents told me this story, I said, I said, what did the doctors and professionals think about you guys after that? And my dad was like, well, you know, I'm pretty sure they probably thought I was crazy that day. Um, but in the end, you know, my parents were the ones that were laughing. But, you know, just from there, you know, and this was, I didn't know about my autism diagnosis until I was 14. Okay. And so, so, so there were some things that I said and did, whether it was in the classroom or at recess in front of, you know, my, my peers, that they would just look at me and go, you know, why, why would you say something like that? Or why would you have a wig out moment in class? What, why do fire drills bother you so much when they don't even bother the rest of the, you know, student population in the school, you know? So, but that's, that was me on the spectrum, you know, cause I know folks who may be listening to this or watching this may go, well, Anthony Ianni doesn't have autism. I don't see it. I don't recognize it. So my autism, I'm very black and white. So what that means is you may say something to me, but I'll take it the complete opposite. Growing up, I had a tough time understanding nouns, verbs, idioms, sarcasm, and jokes. Um, I could barely go to football and basketball games as a kid because just the stimulation and the overload of the crowd noise, the buzzer on the scoreboard, the lights, it was just too much for me. And I would have wig out moments in front of all these fans that were at Michigan, that, that were Michigan State fans. Okay. And um, so for me, I had a really difficult time. And so when my classmates saw that, I think they kind of took advantage of that because they knew that, hey, you know, he says and does things different than us, but he's also tricked into doing things as well. So when I was in first grade, um, I was getting bullied and teased a lot by kids at recess until one day a fifth grader, you know, basically came right by my side and told the other people that were picking on me, hey, like, don't don't mess with my little brother, you know, you know, because he's he's with me. And so from that moment on, I was thinking, okay, I got, I got, I got big brother here with me. So I'm good. You know, so he's going to have my back. He's going to protect me. Like I have nothing to worry about, but 
January, I think it was, so first grade on his turn seven. So in January of 1996, 1996, um, you know, we were at recess and my so-called big brother, you know, walked up to me with a bunch of his friends and he had knew that I had, he knew that I had autism just based on what, you know, some of my quirks, some of the things that I said and did differently, but he also knew that I was tricked into doing the same things easily. So he took advantage of all that. So I was with some of my other kindergarten, uh, first grade friends on the playground. They pushed my friends away from me. So my friends couldn't see what was about to happen. And then all of a sudden, you know, it was just us. And then they tricked me into putting my tongue on a frozen pole that day at recess. And so from that day forward, you know, I thought I was doing it at the time in my head thinking, you know, the seven-year-old me is thinking, okay, well, they, 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 they say it's okay because they were telling me, you know, we did it. It was fine. No big deal. But because they knew I was tricked into, into doing the same things easily, they just, they just took a huge advantage of it. And so from that day forward, like I dealt with more bullying and teasing from the fifth graders because of that little incident, because they ended up telling people about what had happened. And so, but my friends didn't see it. And so the principal or the teachers didn't know about it because there were no witnesses around. So they went ahead and just pushed all my friends away. And so that was definitely a day where, you know, I always tell students my story or I tell students that story all the time whenever I go into schools and speak and their first reaction is, you know, why? You know, why would you take advantage of somebody like that? Because now, because there are, there are some kids in today's schools that, take advantage of individuals with disabilities as well. But when they hear my story about what happened to me, it's like, oh, wow, like that happened to him. We're doing this with this person. So maybe we need to step back. And so, but from that day forward, it was, it was just the little things. Like even at recess, like whenever we play two hand touch football and we would, you know, we would always keep score all the time. But for me, you know, I would always, my mom always told me like, nobody wins, nobody loses. And and, that, and at that time as an eight, nine year old, I would think, all right, we won. We didn't lose. Like we won. So that was always my mindset. So, so I would always just cheer to myself or say to myself, we won, we won, we won. But then the guys I was playing with at recess, you know, would, you know, throw it back at me, you know, screaming, you know, you know, we won, we won back in my face or you lost, you lost. And I'm, but again, I had no idea why they were doing it, but they thought it was trying to be funny. Um, so, but, but again, it was just rough because yeah. nobody really quite understood, you know, why I said and did the things that I said and did and why sometimes I was tricked easily. Because again, autism during that time period was not even talked about because yeah. again, there was no awareness for it. And we just kind of talked about, you know, we talk about today how awareness and acceptance is so important for the autism community. You know, in 1997, that wasn't even talked about because people were still trying to learn about autism then. Yeah. Um, but I really think that for me, the bullying didn't start to really get worse until I got to middle school. Mm. And, 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 and it's funny I say that because teachers or administrators, whenever I get a chance to talk to them at conferences or in their own schools in between presentations, the number one question, one of the top questions I will always get asked, besides the question, how tall are you? <laughs> um, the, the other question I get asked all the time is, when do you think bullying is the worst? And I always say middle school. 
I always say middle school, in my opinion, because, you know, so I'll kind of use Okemos as a good example where I grew up, my hometown. So when I grew up in Okemos, there were two middle schools during that time. There was Kennewa Middle School and Chippewa Middle School. So I went to Chippewa Middle School. So at that time, we had six different, six or seven different elementary schools. So some of us knew each other from playing Little League basketball with each other and against each other. But when you got to middle school, it wasn't just the Little League sports guys you were with. You were with a whole bunch of different people from different elementary schools. And my elementary school, Warcliffe Elementary, it, it would go to Kennewa. But because my mom worked at Chippewa, she wanted me to be, you know, or she wanted me to go to Chippewa so she can keep an eye on me. And she knew the teachers there and the principal. So everything would work out perfectly for me there. So when I, my first day, like I only knew a few people. So it took me some time to kind of get my feet wet and get to know everybody. But, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say this. I'm a people person. So once I sit down with you, once I have a chat with you, get to know you, like I'm a, like you're, you're my friend. So like, like when you and I talked earlier, Right away, like once I got to know you a little more, you know, got to talk with you. It's like, yeah, you know, this is a guy I could talk with for for a long, long time and just kind of bounce ideas and just chat down the road. Um, But for me, that was not the case because middle school is also where you're trying to fit in certain groups, you know, whether it's the cool groups, the sports groups, I mean, whatever the case may be. And so so for me, I was trying so hard to fit in. And so when I was in sixth grade, you know, at 11 years old, I was six feet tall and I wore a size 13 shoe. I was the biggest kid, maybe not just in my entire school, but maybe my entire town at 11 years old. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, we, I mean, today there's a, there's a kid at Okemos who's a seventh grader who's six foot seven and he's the number five player in his class for basketball. So he completely destroyed my height record <laughs> at well, middle school because <laughs> When I was a seventh grader, I was six foot two and I wore a size 15 shoe, but he completely destroyed me by, you know, five inches there. But, you know, during that time, like there wasn't anybody else in my school that was even close to my height during that time. And so I was, I was bullied and teased a lot because of my height. Um, I actually ended up, you know, getting called names a lot, like the Jolly Green Giant. There was one kid who called me the Jolly Green Giant all the time. And it drove me to the point where I almost wanted to go to school the next day and just, and just, and just knock him out. Like just punch him in the face. Cause I was so angry yeah. and I just didn't take it anymore because my, my parents have always taught me to, to kill people with kindness because if, if somebody tries to disrespect you or bully you, like my parents have always taught me just to look back and smile. Yeah. And so that's what I do. And I still do it to this day. Like if somebody, if there's a person out there that doesn't like me, that, tries to like disrespect me you know if, if you disrespect my family like i'm always going to go to bat for my family but if you disrespect me i'm always gonna you know just you know kind of turn my shoulder a little bit smirk at you and walk away because you know the one thing that one of my closest friends in high school taught me was don't worry about what other people say or think about you you know because the only person's only one person's thoughts and opinions in your life matter the most and that's yours you know not not the world's not the media's not your friends or classmates or teammates but your thoughts and opinions alone matter the most. But as a as a sixth grader, I didn't even think about that because I as at 11, 12 years old, I was more worried about what other people were going to say or think about me. And so, so I wanted to kind of fit in and kind of be that that cool guy, if you will, that people can just go, oh yeah, he's a funny guy. And so, um, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Three Stooges at all. 
But um, but my dad, Curly and Mo, right? Yep, Mo, Mo, Larry, and Curly. And so so Curly was always my favorite, you know, because he was just so funny and the sound of and the sounds he would make and just the hand gestures and everything. I mean, I mean, I could do that all. <laughs> so so my dad introduced it to me that summer going into sixth grade. And so it was on AMC all the time. And my dad watched it all the time with his dad and his brothers as a kid. And so, um, so for me to be able to, you know, have that experience with my dad, you know, it was fun because I got to watch what he watched growing up as a kid. Um, and, and so, so I decided to take the three Stooges bits to school with me. So I would do all the sound effects, all the noise, the hand gestures, everything. I do it in the hallways in between classes. And so people, you know, I had people in my class who, who laughed at it. And that, you know, there were a couple of buddies of mine who really enjoyed it. But then it kind of got to the point where I, it wasn't people laughing with me. It was people laughing at me. But during that time, I didn't understand that. It, it probably took me a good 10 years to figure out, hey, they're really not laughing with you. They're laughing at you. But again, that was me trying to find my way in middle school. And it was also, you know, my autism brain going 100 miles an hour, too, because if there were certain situations where I would get so hooked up on, I can't let them go. That's one of my other weakness being on the spectrum. Okay. And so, and so, um, so sixth grade was rough and, and it really, I don't think, and honestly, like, I don't think, I don't think things really got easier for me probably until my sophomore year in high school, because that's where basketball kind of came into play for me. So I started playing competitive ball when I was seven years old and then you know, middle school ball was fun, but I still, you know, endured some teasing from my own teammates at the time because of the way I would run, the way I would shoot. Um, but again, at, at that age, I wasn't a full, I wasn't a developed player yet. Like I was just playing it for fun. You're growing um, up your body, man. Holy cow. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And like, I was having so many knee, knee and, you know, heel problems because when I was in second grade, I would have like this throbbing pain in my heel every day. So if I were to hit my, the back of my heel on one of my leg chairs right now, even just like, just a small like tap, not a full on, you know, hit it against the chair, just a small tap. My, the, my, the pain in my heel would just be throbbing okay. because my feet were growing rapidly. They were growing rapidly. And so, and I dealt with a lot of Osgood slaughter, some tendonitis in my knees and yeah. it was not fun. Like just trying to run it, it just running hurt. Like it just hurt trying to run. And so, but I had to play through it. Um, so, but I think around, you know, eighth grade, I, I got better a little bit at certain things. I got better at my jump shot, my free throws, especially. Um, and so my freshman year at Oklahoma's high school, you know, again, you know, you go from middle school to high school and then, but it's, it's completely a whole different world Yeah, because now you have, now you have Kinawa and Chippewa merging together in this in into this 1600 you know 1600 population student high school nice. and so and and again like it's a lot of guys that i knew playing against playing against in basketball 
because Kenawa and Chippewa was a big rivalry, you know, when we were in school. You know, I went 2-0 against Kenawa, by the way, so I have bragging rights for them for a lifetime. <laughs> um, but even then, like, a, an in-town rivalry ended up being, you know, my, my mom my mom thought it was ridiculous that we actually had a rivalry, yeah. you know, in our hometown. But, you know, because we were all going to go to school together. So we go from Kenawa and Chippewa to now merging into Okemos High School into one big building. Um so again, Okemos at the time had 1,600 students. So I'm, I, I'm trying to like navigate everything. You know, where, are my classes going to be in lower A, lower B? Like, it was just ridiculous. And so, and I'm meeting a bunch of new people for the first time in a long, like basically ever. Yeah. You know, guys I knew growing up playing were there, so I was mostly around them. But you know, just trying to get to know everybody within a certain amount of, you know, in a certain amount of time, it was really tough. So, and then you have like 50 guys trying out for the freshman team. And was there ever a time where, you know, I wasn't confident not making the team? There was never a time where I felt like, oh, I'm not going to make it. No, I knew that I was always going to make it. I mean, I'm six foot six at age 14 years old with a size 17 shoe. Like, I'm not, I'm making this team. I'm going to make this team, which ended up happening. Um, but again, I was still enduring all the bullying and the teasing and even a lot of doubters in my school. And this was, a, this was also Michael, where just before my freshman year of high school, my parents had told me the story of when I was diagnosed as a kid. Okay. And so it, it was, it was two weeks before school started and I was in our den just watching a Detroit Tigers baseball game. Cause I'm a big Tigers fan. Um, so my parent, my parents called me into our living room and they said to me, son, we have a story we want to tell you. I said, okay, what's going on? And so they told me the story about how, you know, what the doctors and professionals said about me, how I would barely graduate from high school, never go to college, never be an athlete, on and on and on. And all I kept, all I kept doing was sitting there thinking, who would say this about a five-year-old? Right. Like, why, why would you say this about a five-year-old who, you know, had just started developing you know, his ABCs, his numbers and learning all the small things that a kindergartner should learn. Now, granted, my six-year-old son who's a kindergarten is way beyond me in what I ever learned, which is, I'm not complaining. You know, my son's a really smart kid. Um, but for me, I was like, why? Like, why not wait and see how I develop over the next four to five years and then make your evaluation then? Like, I'm five. Like, I'll I'm still trying to count to 20 here to count to 30, whatever. Um, so, so my parents told me all that they asked me one question and the question was, you know, what do you think about all this? And I was like, well, I'm kind of glad because, you know, over the years I was in res I was in resource room from middle school all the way till I graduated high school. And in that resource room was different individuals with different learning disabilities. Some had autism, some had, had ADD, ADHD, some had reading comprehensions, um, so I knew that I knew I had a learning disability at that time. I just didn't know what it was. And then my parents told me what I was diagnosed with. And I'm like, oh, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. Why I say this all the time and why it may be sounding different from what another person would say. Um, so it finally clicked to me. Okay. This is what I have. This explains why I went through all the bullying and teasing and disrespect, you know, so far in my life. Yeah. And then I remember, I went back to our den and I turned the TV back on and then I put it on mute and I sat and 
I just leaned forward in the recliner for like 30 seconds with my head down. And then I looked up and I said to myself, okay, let's go shut some people up. Let's go show the entire town, this entire community, show all your peers why you can do this, why you can do that, despite having autism and despite going through the disrespect and the bullying you're going through. It's not going to be hard. I mean, not going to be hard. It is going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But you have the motivation now to go out and show everybody in this town, hey, this is why you shouldn't doubt me. This is why you shouldn't bet against me. So let's go and have a good first year and let's see what happens. That's good. That's good, man. I like that. Thanks, man. So, so my freshman year, we went 15 and five on the freshman team. And the thought of me playing varsity basketball the next year, it didn't even cross my mind. So I started playing, I started playing AAU for the Michigan Mustangs out of Kalamazoo, Michigan. And my coach, Anthony Stuckey, who's, you know, one of my biggest, you know, influences and my biggest mentors in my life. Um, Coach Stuckey was, when we first met, he said to me, you know, I introduced him as Anthony. And of course, his first name is Anthony, too. And so he's like, well, what's your last name? I said, Ianni. And he had a tough time, like many people, pronouncing my last name. And he was like, well, I can't call you Ianni because, you know, I have a tough time saying it. Give me till the end of practice today. I'm going to figure out a nickname for you. I'm going to figure it out. So, so this is tryouts that I was going through. And so he called me and my teammate, Tyler Stewart, who went to Okemos with me over before the end of tryouts. And he said, Hey, just letting you guys know you've made the team. I like what you guys bring to the table. And so you guys have a chance to start, you know, obviously this is your first time with us, but you know, we think you can bring something to the table for our team. And coach Stucky looked at me and said, he said, oh, AI, by the way, I need you to start jumping rope. And I was like, AI, I'm like, oh, Anthony Ianni, duh. And so that's where the nickname AI was officially born. And so when I went back to school, when I went back to school, and I loved it, Michael, too, because during that time, Allen Iverson was one of the most popular players in the world, not just in the NBA, but one of the most popular basketball players in the world. So fun to watch, man. Oh, he was. And oh. what him and Shaq – you know, outside of Michael Jordan, because Michael, in my opinion, will always be the GOAT, will always be my favorite. Amen. Speaking my language now, man. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> What's the so, commonality? We can build on that. Exactly. So, but when it comes to, you know, most dominant basketball players ever, you know, Shaquille O'Neal is number one on my list because Shaq was just so dominant. Um, but my favorite player to watch of all time was Allen Iverson. And what I loved about Allen Iverson was he was just so tough. Yes. Just so tough. Like he can he can play a game on a sprained ankle and still drop 40 points on you and dish out 15 assists. He can play with a broken hand and yep. still drop 50 points on you. And that that's what I admire the most about Allen Iverson he to this day. Right at the big goals like yourself, man. He'd go right at you. And, and right. Like he, he he never backed down. And I'm sorry to get stuck on this tangent, but man, when you're speaking basketball, it, these guys, like these guys are my heroes, right? I didn't play mm-hmm. as well as you for as long as you, but my gosh, um, Michael Jordan said, "I'm glad he's not taller than he is," because like, I mean, he right, <laughs> like that—that that was it, right? I'm just glad. Yeah, he, I'm glad he was short because we all would have been in trouble. Oh, it's true. If if Allen Iverson would have been the same height as Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, I mean, Allen Iverson is probably 
going down as one of the greatest players of all time because he, I mean, he did it all. And, you know, I'm not saying like, you know, Michael or Kobe weren't tough or anything like that. I mean, they were tough. I mean, Kobe Bryant went two for two, you know, with, with a torn Achilles, yeah. you know, he could have easily walked off, but he never did. Yeah. Um, but just watching how tough Allen Iverson was made me realize I, I like watching him because he doesn't back down. Doesn't so that nickname was like, I like this. This is good, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so when I, when I went back to school the following week, um, a lot of my friends at school called me by my last name, called me Iani. And I, and I automatically said to them, I said, no, just drop that. It's, it's just AI now. Yeah. And now, now it started to catch on a little bit. And so, so by my sophomore year, when I got to high school, it wasn't Iani anymore. It was AI. Yeah. Even to this day, when I go back home, it's still AI. Yeah. <laughs> Refer to me as AI. And I'm like, like all right, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Um, so, but going into my sophomore year of high school, after I played a full summer with the Mustangs in AAU, and all of Coach Stuckey's, his guidance, his advice, his wisdom about, you know, what I could do to be better as a player, him teaching me, you know, to jump rope a hundred times a day, um, you know, just everything he taught me. And so we had a conversation after our, we lost in our um, tournament in Vegas, in Las Vegas. And so he said to me, he called me down to the hotel lobby and he said, Hey, here's the deal. He said, you are varsity ready right now. And, and remind you, Michael, like I playing varsity after my freshman year, it never crossed my mind. I'm thinking, sure. okay, I'll go, for, I'll go freshman JV in two years of varsity. That, that never crossed my mind. So when Coach Stuckey says to me, you're varsity ready, you're ready to go. And then, but then he says to me, but I want you to remember something. You look in the mirror every single day you wake up and you say to yourself, that spot is mine. Nobody's going to take it. It's mine. So every single day, whenever I jump rope, whenever I was working on my free throws, you know, when I was working on my post game, whatever Coach Stuckey was teaching me, I always looked at myself in the mirror. Or sometimes in the in my my mom the re, my reflection on my parents' cars in the garage, and just go, it's your time. This is your time to shine. That's your spot. Nobody's going to take it. <laughs> so so before school started though, um, MichiganPreps.com, you know the, the recruiting websites that have like all these different rankings, like the top fifty players in the state of Michigan, the top ten centers in the state of Michigan. So during that time, um, they came out with the class of 2007 rankings. And so my uncle, who lives in Fort Worth, uh, Texas, Fort Worth, Dallas area. So he sent my dad an email and the email read, found this the other day, pretty cool stuff. And it was rankings, top players, top point guards, top centers and power forwards in the state of Michigan. Uh, they had me ranked as number one, the number one center in the entire state of Michigan for the class of 2007. When my dad showed me this, I was excited, but then my dad, you know, respectfully reminded me, hey, just remember, it doesn't mean anything. It's nice to get recognized, but it doesn't mean anything. And so that was kind of my mindset. Like, this is cool, you know, I never imagined, you know, something like this happening. And so, but this is what all my hard work has led me to. And so, I go to school on Monday and all the people who doubted me and bullied me and disrespected me, it was out the window. It, it was like, it never even happened. Mm. 
And so I remember going back home and I was like, I was like, so-and-so just gave me a high five at school today. Like, like what the heck is going on here? And so apparently, um, so after school, you know, whether it was my sophomore year up till I graduated, I would always, I would always stay after school and shoot for a half hour until the girls team would come in and practice. And so, um, so I remember one of the girls players came up to me and asked, Hey, are you really the number one center in the state of Michigan? And I, I, I'm not, I'm not a very, I don't like to brag. You know, I, I count my blessings every day and thank you know, the big man upstairs for everything he gives me in life, but I didn't know how to react. So my response was, yeah, yeah, I am. So, so from that day forward, basketball is what really drove me, you know, to earn the respect of my peers and not just my peers, but my teachers too, because yeah. it also showed my teachers how hard I worked, not just in the classroom, but on the court as well. And I think they respected that a lot. And a lot of my teachers during my IEP meetings, you know, for folks who don't know what IEP stands for, it stands for individualized education plan. And so anytime my teachers were in those meetings, they saw me go from this little five-year-old kindergartner who was given no shot to all of a sudden, you know, a, a, I don't want to say a big time basketball player, but a very good basketball player at that time at Oklahoma High School. Hey, I've lived in the Midwest for a while. I used to live in Indiana. I served an LDS mission there for two years. I, I, I was up in Niles, Michigan. I, I'll, yeah, tell you, yeah. I'll tell you something, man. Basketball in the Midwest, like – it's it's a religion out there. It's not just a it's not just a sport. You come out to Utah, you go to a high school basketball game, and you'll be like, ah, oh, that, that's a, that's cool, you know? Right, right. In the Midwest, you go to a game out there, oh. and it's like going to a football game down in Texas, right? In high school, like it's, oh, it's, it's like it's a everything. big deal. Yeah, it's a it's a very big deal, and like um, you know, you talk about crowds. So we had a big rivalry with Holt High School, who was literally like twenty minutes down the street from us, and. The first year we played in my sophomore year, um, they had the number one power forward on their team and a guy named Paul Crosby. Um, Paul was about 6'7", 270 pounds, but he, he, could, he had footwork like Barry Sanders. Like he had really quick feet for a guy his size. Kidding. And so, um, so the first time we played in my sophomore year, they beat us in overtime at our place. You know, we were up five, but then they came back and then they hit a half. I don't even know how to describe it. He, it's like they took the ball over half court. They were up in the air, leaning toward the sideline, and just chucked it and went in at the buzzer. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, that, that was exactly my reaction. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. And, th and then we go to their place, and we went in triple overtime. And, bo and, and both student sections, both games, rushed the court, you know, whoever won. And then we get to districts, and who's the first team we play is Holt. So we end up losing to them in districts, but – you know, they went on to win the state championship, but it was the start of a rivalry after that. And so we were actually both preseason top five my junior year. And so um, so what had happened was it's undefeated versus undefeated. It's Okemos versus Holt at Holt. And it's a top game in the state. So everybody's there. So Holt probably seats about maybe 3,000, 3,500 people in their gym. They sold the freshman game out by four o'clock. The gym was packed. So our team bus left early. So we got, we would usually get the, to JV games around five forty-five. We got to the freshman game at four o'clock. So we walk. So our bus pulls in the parking lot 
And all we heard on all we heard on the side of the bu- our bus was bang, 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 bang. And we're thinking, are, are we under attack here from you know our, our rivals right now? And so we look out our windows. It was our student section. They were tailgating in the parking lot in 15 degree weather in January. No kidding. It, I, dead serious. Like they brought their own like mini grills. They were grilling hot dogs, burgers, brats. They had hot chocolate. Two guys I knew bought two kegs of root beer, like <laughs> kegs, actual kegs of root beer, and so, and so the so the um, so the Meridian Township Police, you know, they were there, you know, you know, making sure crowd control and everything. They actually had to check the kegs, so they had to like they had to like pour out themselves to make sure it was root beer, and they were like, oh yeah, you guys are good, yeah. but I thought I thought it was hilarious and creative. You know how our guys did that, and so. But then, you know, they beat us in overtime at their place, and then we come back to our place, and we were we were number two in the state. They were number three. So here's what was on the line: the number one ranking in the state, and then of course a clinch of the a clinch of the league championship. The Breslin Center where Michigan State played, they offered to host the game. Mm. They offered to host the game. So, but we were all like, no, like we want to get to the Breslin Center when we make it to the state finals because that's where all the state championship games are played for basketball for high school. So we were like, no, we we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna make sure we do this on our time. We want this game in our gym. So they moved the freshman game a, a day the day before, a day of, and then of course they go ahead and JV game starts at five thirty. But here's what they did: they did shuttle busing from Kenawan Chippewa parking lot. And, and then they went ahead and made sure that you can go on our aux gym and watch the game live. Cause they broadcasted the game live on TV. No so if, you could, if you couldn't get into our gym, you can go to a sports bar and watch the game. I love it. And so, and, but like you said, like when it comes to like the Midwest, it's a big, big deal. It's Jeez. a very big deal. And so, so we skip ahead. So, you know, skip ahead to, you know, my, my senior year, you know, it was basically down to, um, you know, Michigan state was always my dream school. I wanted to go to Michigan state or bust. That was it. Um, so for me, I was recruited by a lot of schools. You know, I got, I was recruited by Michigan state, Michigan, Purdue, Wisconsin, um, Notre Dame, Valpo, Eastern, Western, Central Michigan, a lot of the Mac schools, uh, Grand Valley State, Fair State, like a lot of the Div- Division II schools. Um, but Michigan State was always the place I wanted to go. So I was down to three schools. I was down to Michigan State, who offered me to be a preferred walk-on. Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, where my high school point guard was going at the time. Yeah. And then I want, and then Grand Valley State, one of the best Division II athletic programs in the country, offered me a full ride. Um, Oakland pulled back their offer. And so now it's Grand Valley State or Michigan State. So it's a full ride versus, you know, my, my dream school for a coach, for a coach who I want to play for my whole life. And so, so my dad worked in athletics at Michigan state for over 26 years. He retired two years ago. He was the deputy athletic director. And so, so I've been around Michigan state athletics my entire life. And so, um, so for me, you know, Michigan state is where I wanted to be because I'm green and white's in my blood. It always will be. Yeah, and I married, you know, a Michigan fan. My wife's a Michigan. Fan. Oh, uh oh, a divided home, man. Yeah, house divided, man. 
<laughs> and so, um, so, so for me, you know, if you, if you talk about Michigan, that that's not, that's a big no, no, man. Yeah, that's right. A big, big no, no. So, but Michigan state is where I wanted to go, but I had a really, I was torn and it's a full ride offer at one of the top division two programs in the country. Hard to turn down. Yeah, it is. And it, it free books, free tuition, food, yeah. housing, like everything. We're a walk-on spot. You know, you're not guaranteed a scholarship. You're just not. And so, um, so I had a, I had a sit down conversation with coach Izzo and he had known me so for so long and he knew me so well. Um, you know, I told him, I said, I'm torn, you know, I don't know what to do. And he just looked at me and said, well, I'm just going to tell you right now, you are, you're offered a walk-on spot here. And so, but I can't, I can't promise you you're going to get a scholarship. I can't promise that. You know, I know you'll come in here and work hard for us, but I can't promise you. I just can't. But you also have a full ride on the table. It changes your life. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't take this full ride, I'm going to treat you like one of my players and scream at you so loud that everybody in this building is going to hear it today. <laughs> so, but but that that's when I knew that, okay, Coach Izzo has my back. He, he, he wants what's best for me. He cares about you. Yeah, exactly. And he wasn't even my coach at the time. He wasn't. And so, um, so, so that was the easy decision for me to make was to go to Grand Valley State. Um, but I'll never forget him saying this. He said, just, just, just want to let you know, if anything changes, just know you got a Jersey and a locker here waiting for you if you ever want it. How cool. So, so I went to Grand Valley State after that for two years we were 36 and one my freshman year, played, played with some incredible group of guys. And we beat Michigan State, believe it or not, in an exhibition game my freshman year. Yeah, we did. And so some of my friends will joke with me now and saying, oh, it didn't count. It was just exhibition. I go, I said, please. It didn't <laughs> yeah, sure. We, for, first ever basketball game on the Big Ten Network at the time. Don't tell me it didn't count. Yeah. I don't it didn't count. It was a packed house. They were top five in the country at the time. Yeah. Okay. Don't tell me. That. <laughs> oh, sure. So I, act, so I actually had bragging rights over Coach Izzo on that one, and so I brought that up to him one time, and you know, but he walked away though. So, so we were thir- so we were thirty six and one. I played an incredible group of guys, but by my sophomore year, things just didn't quite work out, and so I decided that I was like, you know what? As much as I would love you know, to be able to spend my final two years here at the university where I've met so many incredible people, made so many incredible relationships, you know, it's just time for a change. And I could have went anywhere else in the country or anywhere else in the state. I had a lot of the Mac schools, you know, recruiting me again. I had Spring Arbor University who offered me a full ride scholarship outside the final four in Detroit that year. But it was always it was always Michigan State or bust for me. And I had a conversation with Coach Izzo again, and he knew my intentions. And he flat out said to me, said, look, if you're going to come here, here's the deal. I'm going to treat you like every other player I've treated here. Just because you have autism, I'm not going to treat you any differently. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to coach you like I've coached Mateen Cleese, like I coached Morris Peterson, like all these, all these great Jason Richardson, Zach Randolph, um, just all these greats. I'm not going to treat you any differently. And that's what I wanted to. And, and he told me, he's like, I'm going to push you though. I'm going to push you to a limit that, that you haven't been pushed before. And I said, coach, I got you. Like I, I will run through 
a brick wall for you. Like, you know this, I will do anything for Michigan State. So I enjoyed an incredible, incredible three years in Michigan State. I was a two-time Big Ten champ, went to a Final Four, and not only did I get my bachelor's degree in sociology from Michigan State, but I ended up becoming the NCAA's first Division One college basketball player with an autism diagnosis. Yeah. So that's a piece of history that I'm proud to own amazing. For, for the rest of my life. And so, but again, you know, it was all those doctors and professionals that kind of motivated me to get to where I'm at today. And not just them, but like all the bullying, the doubting and the disrespecting that I took from people that, you know, that was my motivation each and every single day, you know, to make sure that, hey, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go out and prove people that autism doesn't define me. I'm going to go define it. And I'm still doing that to this day. You know, I am a, I'm a national motivational speaker now. Um, so like you mentioned earlier, I do a lot of uh, anti-bullying talks to K through 12 schools, businesses. Um, I do, you know, transition, you know, transitioning life with autism at conferences, do leadership talks to teams all over the country. Um, so it's a lot of fun, man. But, you know, it's not about, it's not just about, you know, my story, you know, it's a story that I want everybody to get behind, you know, for the autism community. And it's a story that I want that people, the one thing I want to give people from my story is hope and inspiration to know that there is hope out there no matter what, and you can be inspired and you can do things in life despite having all these different obstacles and challenges that you may have in your life. Um, But you know how, but the number one reason why I do what I love to do, Michael is, is because of the autism community. So after I did my first ever keynote speech, it was at an autism gala in April, 2012, two weeks before I graduated from, um, uh, from college. And I asked my wife a question. And the question was, other than, other than Dr. Temple Grandin, who's one of the most famous individuals in the world with autism, I said to my wife, I said, name me somebody else like her, who's a big role model, hero, icon, and leader in the autism community. My wife sat in, in her car seat for 30 seconds and she couldn't think of anybody. And that's when I looked at her and I said, you know what? I'm going to go be that guy. I'm going to go be that hero, that inspiration and that leader that that community can look up to. And so I was handed an opportunity that I ran with because I was always taught, like, if you are handed opportunities, like you grab the bull by the horns and you just run with it, man. Like you don't look back. And so, and and my father always taught me, and this is a model that I use to this day is, you know, the harder you work, the more you earn because hard work is going to bring you a lot of good things in life. And that's what my father taught me. And so I'm going to to teach my kids that same philosophy, you know, and I'm going to continue to pass down that philosophy to every single, you know, student administrator, or, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I'm going to continue to pass that down each and every single day. I love it, man. God, what a story. Holy crap. Um, Just, just powerful. And I mean, as you're sitting here talking about your high school basketball days, when you, when you fall into this passion and this love of basketball, high school, college, like I totally forget you have autism, autism, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, no, this guy is achieving everything. And what a, what an amazing thing that you're doing is you're, you're paving a way for so many to actually all of a sudden in their minds to say, you know what? I could do that too. Cause he did it. AI did it. That's the goat. <laughs> the goat of autism is AI right there. <laughs> so I've got, so I got some questions for you and, and I kind of want to start if it's okay with your mom and dad, Sure. your mom and dad seem like amazing people. Um, 
first of all, what are their names, if you don't mind? So my dad's my dad's name is Greg, and my mom's is uh, Jamie. Greg and Jamie, I you know, if you hear this, I just got to say, you guys are incredible parents. Because, I mean, wow, like you you could kind of back at that moment with the doctors, you could kind of start to play the pity party, right? Like, yeah, well, great, we've got these professionals, these studied people that 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 are telling us there's no chance, and you could go home and get frustrated and whatever. But you know, your parents were like, no. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it happens. Tell me about your parents growing up around like your youth. What what would they do to really like enable you and empower you to feel like you could do what any other kid out there could do? I think it was just how they were raised too. Um, you know, my 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 dad's dad, my late grandfather, um, you know, God rest God rest him. You know, my my grandfather was a no nonsense guy. You know, he he would always tell me all the time. My dad would always tell me that because my dad played varsity baseball, uh, basketball and football. He's really good at all three. My dad actually ended up playing um, baseball at Michigan State University for a couple of years. So and then my mom was a three sport All-American at Adrian College. And she, she still holds like nine school records for basketball. She's the school's all time leading scorer with sixteen hundred and ninety nine points. Dang. That that's men and women, and and this was and this was a that was during a time period, Michael, where she averaged twenty five, ten, and five, and they were using a men's basketball at the time. Mrs. Ioni could hoop, man. Oh man, like she she would tell me all these crazy stories about how she would be in the gym at five in the morning, like she was a gym rat, but yeah. she would go from volleyball right into basketball, then right into softball, and I'm like, mom, like that's like you have to be like freakishly athletic to be able to do all that stuff. And, and I, and I didn't hear about this until after I, you know, had graduated high school. My mom was a four sport athlete in, in high school. She would do, she did volleyball, basketball, and she did softball and track in the same season. No kidding. I was like, like, all right. I I said, now I understand where the athletic genes came from, came from. But, um, but my dad's dad, you know, I guess, and these are funny stories. My dad would tell me, I guess like after every game, my grandfather would always critique my dad and, and it wouldn't just be nice critique. It'd be nice. It'd be, it'd be good, you know, comments, but it'd also be critical as well. Yep. So, and my grandmother, I love my grandmother. She would criticize my dad if he didn't make his free throws. So every game my grandmother would come watch me play whether it was AAU or, or varsity basketball, or even when I got in games at Michigan state, if I didn't go a hundred percent from the free throw line, Oh man, my grandmother would let me have it, man. Like even if I went, I went nine for 10 in a game one time and I still got a phone call. Well, how come you didn't go 10 for 10? And I'm like, I'm like, grandma, like 90% is pretty good. I don't care. This be I'm like, and I would say to my dad, like, dad, like really? Like and he would just go, Yep, I was in the same boat as you. But, you know, again, that's how my dad was raised. And and my mom's competitive edge, I think, was always something that kind of just, like, came together. And then they just – that kind of rubbed off onto me. And so that's when I think just their competitive nature and their no-nonsense attitude, I think that's what made them say to me, you can do this. But more importantly, you have to believe in yourself. Because if you don't believe in yourself, then who will? Yeah. You, know, you gotta be able to believe in yourself. And so, so I always tell, I tell kids that all the time, you don't believe in yourself. 
nobody else will. Yeah. You have to believe in yourself. You have to be positive in everything that you do. Um, but just like everything my parents have, have gone through, not just as athletes, but as educators, administrators. Like I said, my dad was in working at Michigan State Athletics for 26 years. He worked at Ohio University for eight, Virginia for three. So if you combine all that, that's close to 40 years right there of working in NCAA athletics. And my dad has seen the good side and the bad side of all that. Sure. But the one thing my dad always taught me was you keep your head down, you keep your focus on what's in front of you, and you block out all the noise outside of you. And so that, and to this day, like that's still my mindset. Like I'm not a player anymore, but anytime I work out, whether it's, you know, you know, pre-code, pre-pandemic, if you will, if it was in the gym, if it was on the track in the, on the track at Churchill high school where I helped coach, it didn't matter. I was just focused in the whole time, not worrying about what's going on around me. Yeah. And that was actually one of my coping mechanisms of um, being on the spectrum growing up was that if I was stressed out, if I had, if I was going to have a wig out moment, I take my mom's car keys, go drive, 10 minutes to the high school and I would be in that gym for two hours and I would just shoot and shoot because that, that was my way of getting away from the world. And so, but again, that was also my father saying, just block out the noise. Don't worry about what's going on in front of you or don't, don't worry about what's going on around you. Just worry about what's in front of you and what's in front of you is your family. That's, that's more important than anything. Yeah. And I think that's the one thing, Michael, that I learned from this pandemic is that, you know, there's a lot of noise going on in the world today. There really is, whether whether it's in politics, whether it's in the sports world, whatever whatever the case may be. But the one thing I have learned is that, you know what, control what you can control and focus on the things that are more important, that are the most important to you right now, which is my wife, which is my kids, which is my family's health and taking care of them. Um, but that's all for my parents, man. So yeah. just, just, their, just their competitive edge. And their no-nonsense, you know, attitudes and how they were raised, you know, I think was definitely one of the biggest reasons why not only not only why you and I are talking today, but why, you know, my story is helping others, you know, who are going through the same things right now. And But again, the, like you said, the credit, it goes to my parents because they could have easily just thrown in that towel that day in that meeting and said, there's no, there's no path, there's no guidance, no resources. We got nothing right now. But... They didn't yeah. for, whatever re- for whatever reason, you know, they stuck, you know, they dug in their heels, stayed, st- stayed to the ground, whatever you want to say. And they just, they said, Nope, he's going to do this. We will find a way. Yeah. Find a way. And, and, it, and the coolest thing about it, I think is it's not that they forced you. It's not that they kind of grabbed you by the collar and said, we're going to make something out of you. Cause that we have to, for the pride of us. Right. Yeah. They just taught you to believe in yourself. Yeah. They instilled in you this value system of like, Hey son, you know, number one, they didn't really tell you about it for a long time. So it's like, you know, don't, don't don't worry about it. Like just, just go find yourself. But if you want something, you got to work hard. And Mm -hmm. if you want to be somebody, you, you got to find something to work hard in. Right. Like that's, that is all love. That is all love because it's not force. It's, it's teaching, it's coaching, it's helping you understand what it's going to take and right. encouraging, to go, you, encouraging you to go get it, but without being forceful, right? That's, right. I, think, I, think, I think that's the coolest thing. I think, Anthony, a big thing, I think, in the world that we 
we worry so much about the youth these days and, and we think, man, they're so soft and social media is making everybody. And, and I gotta, I gotta say, I, I think the opposite. I think the youth are incredible and, and they are, their ability to absorb knowledge is like far beyond where I came from being born in 80. I mean, gosh, Holy cow. But like, we need to, like, I think as parents, we need to quit being so dang soft on them, feeling like, oh, they, there's a little anxiety there and I don't want to, like, make them anxious. And I, th- I think what's missing is exactly what your parents gave to you by saying, right. hey, look, don't let people tell you no. If you believe it, you can do it. Plant that seed up here, have the faith, and then go forward. But you got to work for it. W- work, we, we've, we've become a... Um, a people that it's not really a talk about work hard anymore. It's more, no. it, it's more work smart, be smart. So everything is smart first, smart first, smart first. Well, let me tell you something about being working smart. If you want to find the smartest workers, you're going to find the people that were at the bottom working their butts off to know everything mm-hmm. about everything. And then as they did that and they grow into it, that's when they're like, that's when their light speed ahead up in their, there in their mind. And you see that with right. as well. You put in the time, you grind, you've got to grind. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, that allows you mentally to just be in a different place. So, right. And, 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 and it's funny, you mentioned, you know, today's youth as well is that I've seen athletes who have the God given abilities to be very, very great at what they do, whether it is basketball, baseball, basketball, whatever sport you want to want to use. But then I also see them just throw away those opportunities because, you know, like you said, we want to teach our, you know, it's about being smart. Well, some of those kids aren't being smart, you know, because they see what's going on the TV and they think just because so-and-so said it on TV means I can go say it in school or whatever, and I'm going to get in trouble for it. I'm going to lose my spot on the team. And some of these kids are middle school kids. And I'm like, you can't do that. But then there's then they always try to find an excuse for something. And I've always said to kids, like, look, if you're looking for excuses right now, I got news for you. Try doing it when you're 35 years old and you don't get the job you want. What's your excuse for not getting that job? Then you're then you really need to figure out because I'll share this with you. This is one of my favorite things about being a motivational speaker is I try to do things different than what other speakers would do. So like I've watched like so many different videos on Tony Robbins, um, Eric Thomas, who I've met multiple times and just watching how, and, and this may sound funny to you. I watched the rock Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Oh, love him. He's awesome. The, the rock is, is he's not, he's not my all time favorite wrestler. You know, the undertaker is always going to be number one, but Dwayne Johnson, the man is one of my biggest inspirations. I love, I love him. Like just because of how hard he works. So anytime I see his workout videos, I'm like, all right, let, let's get after it today. Let's, you know, let's, let's go do the people's elbow on somebody today. Let's get after it today, right? Um, but I remember, so, um, so I would watch Dwayne Johnson when he was The Rock in WWE, and I would watch his old promos, how he interacted with the crowd and like how, you know, his facial expressions. So oh, best. I, would watch, I would watch The Rock and then, and then I would kind of take a little bit of that to what I do now. But there were times where The Rock would call people out if he ever felt like he was disrespected. And so 
it was about seven, man, six and a half years ago during one of my assemblies, it was for a middle school, grade seven through eight. And so during the assembly, this kid in the corner of bleachers was goofing off a lot. So I kind of looked at, you know, I had, I had the microphone in one hand and I'm looking over the corner. I'm like, okay, just see what happens in 10 minutes. If he's doing it again, call him out. Yeah. So 10 minutes go by. I'm looking at the corner of my eye and he's still goofing around. And I just stopped and I stopped talking. And I said on the microphone, I go, okay, you know what? I did the basketball routine. I said, give me a 30 second time out here. Just, just hold on one second. Did you walk so, over there? I walked over there. Yes. I walked over there. I looked at this kid and I said, young man, here's the deal. You know, what you do in the hallways in school, that's your time. Because that's your time, you know, to have fun, you know, talk amongst your friends. But do me a favor, be smart with what you do in the hallways in between class, okay? Because I don't want you in the principal's office for doing some stupid stuff, okay? When you're in a classroom, you're on one person's time and that's the teacher's time. Because that's their time to teach you. You learn, study, be a better person. When you have an assembly and you have a presenter, a presenter who's traveled a long way away to be here, a presenter who knows what he is talking about, you're on one person's time and one person's only, and that's mine. I got the microphone, not you. And I really don't appreciate how the last 10 to 15 minutes I've been looking over here and you've been goofing around with your friends. And so I didn't come here today to preach on disrespect. I came here to preach the opposite. I came here to preach respect. So again, hallways, your time. Classroom, teacher's time. Assembly, my time. Are we good? And he just looked at me like, because, but even after that, the whole gym went nuts. It went nuts because I think it was the first time that they had ever witnessed a motivational speaker actually call out somebody for their behavior. And after the assembly, I felt so bad. I felt so bad doing it because I'd never done it before. But I had this pit in my stomach, this feeling in my stomach. I was just like, it was like knots. I'm like, uh, you know, for what for whatever reason, that I don't know. Like that, that just didn't feel right. And then I go to the principal and I apologize to him. He said, no. he said, Anthony, what are you apologizing for? He said, that was great. Like if like if anybody was who if there was anybody in this room who was gonna do that, it was gonna be you. He said, if it, if it would have came from me, he's like, I don't think it would have been as powerful as it was. So every school that I go to, if a kid, I don't do it to the elementary school kids. I don't. Because number one, I don't want to scare them. But number two, I've been to enough elementary schools where the teachers handle it instantly. And I have no problem just letting them handle it. But the middle schools and the high schools, I do it there. And I do it. I only do it when somebody's being disrespectful. I've taken phones before and given them to the principal saying, you know, they can get back at the end of the day. But again, that's also a testament to my parents. Yeah. No nonsense attitude. Like if you're going to be, I treat every assembly like it's my classroom. Yeah. When you're in my classroom, no phones, eyes are on me. If you're talking, if you're disrespecting me, guess what? You're going to know about it. So, 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 like I, so I tried my best to separate myself from what other motivational, from other speakers and what they probably may not do. So I, so I got to say something about that real quick. And, and I love it because so I, I speak to a lot of youth groups um, mm-hmm. and, and it happens, right? Like all, often, for sure, often yeah. and, and all the time. In fact, a lot of times you'll see adults kind of like looking, glancing over at them, but not trying to make eye contact, but just kind of like annoyed by them without really saying anything. We don't want to, right? I got to yeah. tell you something though. 
Yeah. When a motivational or, or inspirational or spiritual speaker comes to speak to a youth group, they come to feed that group. They come to yes. give that group a gift. Mm-hmm. They really like, there is not a, a person that I know that goes to gain their own glory somehow. That's not you like, that's not a glorious thing for you. Nobody want, nobody feel when they leave a walk away, it feels like, Oh, a bunch of junior high kids love me now. Like that's not the reason. No, you go. no, you not go at all. Give a gift and to better, like to help kids understand something that you maybe didn't know at that age that you just want them to, to realize and then right. develop even more. And I got to say something, Anthony, like that, that is love. Like yeah. that sounds it, it, to some people they'll, they'll hear something like that and they'll be like, that's harsh. Like you can't do that today. Like that's, you have to be careful. You got to be really careful with people's emotions. I gotta, right. I gotta say, I disagree. That's love. And sometimes yeah. love can be very, <clears throat> that's not forceful but love can be very upfront. Right. And, and the other thing I do too, is that I always double check with the administrators before presentations. I say, Hey, if I see a kid getting out of hand, you mind if I handle it personally in front of everybody. And I, not once have I gotten somebody say, no, don't do that. Every response has always been, absolutely. You do that. You do that. Because again, the principal wants the administration wants their kids held accountable. Yeah. They, they want to learn lessons in every way possible. And again, like you may have somebody that is listening to this and goes, well, you just can't do that. Like, why would you do that? But again, number one, I try to separate myself from the pack, you know, do something that nobody else would ever do. But number two, these are lessons I want. I do it because it's a lesson I want these kids to learn. And the lesson, because about maybe 80%, Michael, of the kids that I do it to, they'll come up to me and apologize to me, or they'll have the administration bring them up to me and say, hey, so-and-so wants to talk to you. They want to say something to you. Yeah. And then when, and then when I thank them for the apology, I always ask the question, do you know why I did it? And the answer will always be, yeah, we were being disrespectful. And my answer will always be yes, but it's a lesson I want you to remember. That's right. So 20, say I'm talking to a freshman in high school. So 15, 14, 15 years all the time. I would, I would always say, say 20 years from now, you, you're working at a, at your job and it doesn't matter where it's at. It could be a small job, small business, big time corporation, wherever. Say you're in a business meeting, you know, work business meeting and your boss is in that meeting and your boss catches you doing the same stuff that you were doing today with me. What is the worst possible outcome that's going to happen from that? And the number one answer always is I'm going to get fired. And I'm like, exactly. So I'm like, you know what? This is why, because I don't want you making that same mistake. I say it's okay to make a same. It's okay to make a mistake because you learn from it. If you make the same mistake twice, eh, okay. Some people are willing to give you second chances, but if you make that same mistake a third time, yeah. and I, and I always tell those students, I, and I'll use it in baseball terms: strike three, you're out of the game. You're out of the game. And, I, and like I like I said, sometimes you get second chances in life because people are always good with that. But you make a third mistake, you make that same mistake third, three times, you're done. And so that, that's the point I always make. You said something too that is very important. Like you connect with them after most cases mm-hmm. and you don't put them into shame, right? Making a mistake is okay. This is a mistake. I'm here to, I wanted to teach you what the consequences of that mistake could be. Don't walk away from here feeling all bad and awful about yourself. Walk away right. from here 
learning the lesson that will bless your life moving forward. To me, that's love. Yeah. Right? That's love. Yeah. I, I think in the in society today, we forget that a little bit. Anyway, let's move on because there's so many things about like your story I want to get to, but that I think that was really important to talk about. Absolutely. And your, your parents just seem like they're so cool. <laughs> and you're going to be a good dad, like, no doubt with what you're saying. And uh, The Rock better be careful because you might steal some of his facial. Remember those facial expressions? <laughs> like, like you smell, right? Like, oh, yeah, that's it. There, the there, people's there, eyebrow. There, <laughs> He is. He, he said something about running for president in the future, and I'm like, yeah, I can get with that. I can get. A, yeah, I was the same way. I was like, hey, you got my vote. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, talk to me about um, those younger days when you really started to have bullying happening to you, right? So, um, grade school days. It's when you were about first grade, you had that fifth grader come, and at first you thought, oh, cool, he's he's my buddy. Like, I've got somebody that's going to watch out for me. He's my family, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden turns his back on you the next time. And then other people kind of catch on. They start turning their back on you. Take me back to that moment. Did you, did you fall into depression? Tell me your feelings around that moment of, of what you were experiencing there. And then how did you process that at a young, such a young age and, and work through that? If I was hurt, man. Cause like, this was a guy who, that I trusted, who I thought had my back. And then he did what he did. And for me at that age, I didn't know how to process it. It was one of those things where I was like, what just happened? Yeah. You know, why, did they, why did they make me do this? And so it was definitely one of those times where I didn't know how to react other than the fact that I was hurt about what happened. But, you know, now that I'm older, I look back on that and I go, you know what? Like, like I mentioned to you earlier, like I'm a people person. So I always want to try to make... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always making sure that I, I treat everybody that I meet with kindness and respect. I'm not going to disrespect you for your views or your political, what political views you have or anything like that, because I've always been taught to respect people's opinions, no matter what it is. And I'll say my opinions and if they're wrong, you know, they're wrong, you know, but it's always like, yeah, that's my opinion. And so, you know, but again, you know, my, going back to what my best friend said, you know, your thoughts and opinions matter the most in life. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. But I was hurt. 17 years later, after that happened, you know, I walked out of our arena after a game one night and, you know, after games, we'll have fans wait up by our arena tunnel who want autographs, pictures, whatever. So I woke up the tunnel after a game and there was this individual outside waiting for us. And it happened to be that same fifth grader. No kidding. And he, he had a basketball in one hand and a Sharpie in the other came up to me. He was excited to see me. You know, we shook hands, but first of all, I'm like, I'm like, um, do I go talk to him? Like, I remember what you did like 17 years ago. So we, so we went up, we were talking for a while. And then he asked the question, you know, Anthony, would you sign, would you mind signing this ball for, for me and my little brother? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll be honored to sign it. But here was the thing. He didn't have a little brother or sister. He wanted that ball signed for himself. So I signed the ball. I gave it back to him. We talked a little bit more and I got my car. And as soon as I, left the, as soon as I left the parking lot, I just started to laugh. I just started laughing because I then said to myself, here was a guy 17 years ago who I thought had my back. The same guy who called me little brother every day, who treated me like family and more respect than anybody in my school. And here he is 17 years later. And you mean to tell me he waited for me outside our arena, waited for me after a game and wanted and asked me for an autograph. And I just kind of laughed again after that because, you know, and this is the point I make to kids all the time whenever I speak, you know, 
it wasn't, you know, I didn't use my hands. I didn't use my feet and I didn't use my words to get my revenge or anything like that. It was just let, it was letting my actions do all the talking for me, you know, cause, cause when I was in sixth grade, same deal. I could have easily had gone to school the next day and fight the kid who was bullying me and teasing me every day because he called me the Jolly Green Giant. Well, fast forward to little league basketball that year, we played each other in little league and who had to guard me the entire game. He did. And I had 20 points on him that day. I hope you turned to me and went, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I should have done that. <laughs> but, but, um, but when I went to school on Monday, you know, I walked up to him and I was going to be a good sport. You know, just shake his hand and say, hey, good game, good job. Just put everything behind me and move on. When I had the chance to do all that, you know, I, I extended my hand. He just looked at me and said, stop what you're doing. Just stop because I know what you're trying to do. I know what you're about to say to me, but I want nothing to do with this because I want nothing to do with you. I'm done. It's over. Then he just walked away. So again, it wasn't my hand. Well, in this case, it was my hands and my feet because I had to use the hands and my feet for basketball. But no hands, no feet, no words, just letting your actions do all the talking for you. And so, but, you know, I'll never forget that day, you know, when I was seven because it hurt me and, you know, if I if I if I had known what that meant at that time, what betrayal actually meant during that time, you know, I probably would have had a different view of the world today than I do now. Mm-hmm. But because I didn't know what it was at the time, you know, I was just hurt. But I, I didn't fall in any depression or anything like that because that was the one thing that my parents refused was that you know if you're gonna get knocked down, you're gonna get right back up. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't have time to feel sorry for yourself. You don't have time to feel sorry for what just happened to you today. You know, just go back tomorrow and just continue to be you. Shake it off you and step up. Yeah. And that and that encouragement and that positive attitude from them every day is what really kept getting me through all the tough days in school. Can do, right? So yeah. so tell me, let's just say, for example, if your son, um, if your son experienced something like that and you were aware of it and he was feeling the way that you felt and, 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 and maybe let's add this. What if it was a kid that, that was that age that knew he had autism? What would you say to him? Oh man. Um, well, obviously I would tell him my experiences, share my experiences on what I went through, you know, like I do today with all kids and just letting them know that, you know, you're not alone. Like I've been in your shoes, you know, but this is how I was able to overcome it. This is what I did. This is, these are the people that were in my corner the whole time. And then I just, it didn't just have to be mom and dad. It could have been some of my teachers. It could have been my principal that was in my corner, you know, because that's all you need in life. You just need at least one person in your corner to help guide you and get to where you want to go and help you overcome the challenges and obstacles that you may see and face in life. So my advice to that individual would always be, you know, always keep communication open with your family because your family's going to help you get through the rough days yeah. and always keep up with communication with your teachers and principal, because they're the ones that are going to help you. And I think that's the other thing too, because we talked about, you know, you know, today's youth, some of today's youth sometimes don't want to step up and do the right thing because if they see bullying going on, they'll just walk past the situation. <clears throat> and I've always told kids who are involved in something like that. I say, well, if you witnessed bullying and you just walked away from it and you didn't do anything, Makes you bold. That and you're part of the problem. Whereas you could have just stepped in and be like, hey, no, no, that's not that's not how we roll here at our school. That's not what we do here. And you could have been part of the solution. 
So, so whenever I mention that the kids, it's now they're feeling more like, okay, I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be the issue. I don't want to be the problem. I want to help fix the problem. So you look out for it. Exactly. Exactly. And one of my other main messages I had for schools is that is you're a part of a family. So that's the one thing I learned at Michigan state was that, you know, we're all Spartans. Yeah. You know, we're Spartans for life. And so whenever I see somebody wearing a Michigan state shirt in town or somewhere or walking through the airport and they say, go green to me, I'm shouting out, go white. Yeah. Because, well, Michigan state, go green, go white. So, yeah. but because that's what Michigan state has always been, it's been family. And so that's always been my message to school. So like, for example, you know, I visited Mason a couple of years ago. They're the Bulldogs. So my message is, you know, you are part of the Bulldog family for life. You know, so why would you want to bully and tease and disrespect somebody who's part of the same group on the same team and part of the same family as you? You get to bleed the school colors forever and ever. You get the, you get the honor and privilege of being a part of something for the rest of your life that nobody else in the country gets to be a part of. You might be part of one of the, not just the state's greatest families, but maybe one of the countries. But always making sure that, you know, you have that open communication with people to talk about what's going on is, it, it's, I mean, as you know, it's more important than anything. So that's always going to be my advice for individuals who are in those situations. That's good. And I got to say something about the Spartans, man. They travel well. Holy yeah. cow, they travel well. <laughs> the fan base is like everywhere. They travel everywhere. I, I went and watched uh, – you know, you've heard the name Jimmer Fredette. Oh yeah, BYU guy. You, you can't BYU. forget. You can't forget about that guy, right? But no, no. Uh, he was man. He was fun to watch at college. But they came out and played against the BYU Cougars at the um, Utah Utah Jazz Arena down in Salt Lake, and and they played uh, Michigan State. And holy cow, man! Like when I showed up the game, I expected it to be like all BYU Cougar fans. Yeah. And I'm telling you, man, like, like almost 50% of the fan base was Michigan State. And all I heard the whole time was, <laughs> go green, go white, right? Like, it's just, I mean, I'll tell you, there's something about that Midwest love. We have a huge alumni base. So our top, our top alumni bases in the country are in Florida, California, New York, Chicago, and anywhere in Texas. Texas and especially Chicago and California because whenever we would travel to Northwestern to play like I mean it's no no disrespect to Northwestern or anything like that but it's never a home game for Northwestern whenever we play them yeah it's it's like a good 70 30 Michigan State fans I love it so you'll love this story too so when 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 we went to the Rose Bowl in 2014 to play Stanford um there was a lot of chatter that, hey, it's going to be a home game for Michigan State because we have a lot of West Coast people, especially in California, Arizona, Colorado, yeah. Utah, yeah. you name it. We have a lot of fans on that on the West Coast. So we had a pep rally outside the Staples Center. It was the at the time, it was the largest pep rally gathering in in LA. We had twenty seven thousand people. You're kidding. Outside the Staples Center for this pep rally, and we had. So the Rose Bowl seats close to 90, I think like 95,000 people. We had 72,000 people there. <laughs> and, and I and after the game, Michael, I took I took this video just like – so the football team after every game, after every win, would go in the corner of the end zone and sing the fight song. Yeah, yeah, I'm seeing it. So they came in the corner of our section. And so I was probably a good distance. I was probably – sitting in a good area where I can like turn my phone all the way around and you can yeah. see the entire stadium. Yeah, not only was that stadium wrapped in green and white, but 
the when they were singing the fight song, you couldn't hear the band playing because everybody in that stadium was singing in unison. That's awesome. And to this day, I watched that video and it still gives me chills because I'm like, you know what? I'll, I've been a part of some great things in Michigan State. I got to be, I got to go to a Final Four, win a couple of Big Ten championships. I got to play on an aircraft carrier in front of all the men and women of our armed forces in, pre, in front of in front of um, in front of President Obama and the First Lady. And so, but nothing experiences like that. I mean, are very rare, you yeah. know. And so, anytime I watch the video, I'm like, man, like yeah. I will never hear seventy thousand people in unison at, screaming at the top of their lungs the Michigan State fight song. So yeah. we we got a crazy fan base, man. And, and I know I'm biased. I think we have one of the best fan bases in the country. So. I think you're right from what I've experienced with you guys, man. And and that energy that comes, but just what you said about Michigan State, it's like we're family. Like that, yeah. That's everything, right? And and there's spirit with that. Let me let me ask you something else too. Um, you mentioned the the big man above. Obviously, you come from a God-fearing home, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you feel God involved in your life through all these experiences that you went through? Oh, 100 percent And even to this day, I do because you know, things happen for a reason. Yeah. They happen for a reason in life. And so anytime something, you know, so for, I'll, I'll use this as, a, as an example, you know, when I was at, when I signed with um, Indiana university press, my publisher for my book, you know, we signed with them uh, last uh, this past June. So June of 2020. And, you know, it was weird how the timeline kind of filled out. So me and my co-author, we finished the book in the fall of 2018 we signed with our literary agent, Joe Perry of Perry Literary in June of 2019. A year later, we signed with Indiana Press. And so I remember just sitting at home, like, I was like, you know what? I, I, I've learned that, and I, and I heard this from Matt Campbell, Iowa State's coach. He said that if you love, if you trust, if you love the process, if you trust and love the process, the process will love you back. But during that whole process, I kept thinking of, When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? But the one thing that I always, that my mom and I always talk about is the big man, when it comes to situations like that, he's testing your patience yes. and you will be awarded with how patient you try to be. And, and there are still some things to this day that, you know, that the, that the book can do beyond, you know, just selling a book. It could do more. Like I'm always one of those individuals that wants it now, but I also learned that, okay, if you trust the process, the process will love you back. That's right. You know, if you're patient, think good things will happen because it's part of your journey and you need to enjoy that journey. So anytime, like, you know, anytime I, I do, like I get an award, you know, I win an award or I'm voted for something. I, I always think the man upstairs because it starts with him. You know, he's the one that he's the one that brought me to this earth. He's the one that's blessed me with a beautiful wife, two beautiful sons, an incredible mom and dad, sister, you know, a great, great university that I graduated from, great teammates, coaches, you name it, he blessed me with that. So again, I, I always, you know, thank him every day for what he gives me and continues to bless me with. And, you know, I, I still got a long journey ahead of me, but uh, I'm, I'm super excited to see, you know, not only what the future holds, but where my journey is going to take me. All right, good for you, man. And I'll tell you what, I, as you say that, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he's proud of you, you know, with, uh, the father is a father of our, our spirits, right. And the creator of all, um, knowing that, that he gave you autism, right? Like, 
I think that's, there's, there's a lot of conversation to be had about what I just said there, but like he knew, he knew that you'd have autism. And I think, and I think he also knew too, that I can use it as a gift. Amen. And you, and not only you personally, but now you're turning around, you're writing a book, you're speaking to schools, you're, you're making, you're bringing this awareness and also not only bringing awareness, but you're bringing like awesomeness to, yeah. to autism, like a- autistic kids now look at, at you and other people like you who are now speaking out about it, like JMAC and they, and they go, I can do it. You know, like I, just cause there's this thing that somebody else has told me about and it's real. I right. can do, I can do it. I can do and, it because and, and there's, AI, there's so many. Yeah. Yeah. I did it. I can and do there, it. And there's so many other things too, that I'm trying to push. Like, you know, the more, the older, older I get and the more and more I'm around the autism community. I, the one thing I have learned is that in talking to other advocates and families, like we have April is always autism awareness month, but the yeah, one thing yeah. that, that I have learned from families and ad, other advocates is we can't bring more awareness until our community itself is accepted. Yeah. Because that's the one thing the community is fighting for more, even, even more now is acceptance. And so, because I've met other um, individuals on the spectrum who think autism, having autism is a curse. Yeah. Or like they're not proud of it. And so whenever they ask me, I, and I've had multiple students with, with autism ask me this question. They've always asked me, are you proud to have autism? I'm not like, and then they say, well, I'm not proud because it's a label. And then I always reply with, well, here's the thing. Everybody in life has a label. And I always say, I have six of them. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a Michigan State, former Michigan State Spartan. I'm a former college basketball player. I'm a motivational speaker and I have autism. And I am proud to say I have all those things, especially that last one, because autism got me to where I'm at today in my life. Autism got me to the position that I am in today. And again, like I didn't let it define me. You know, I define it. And so I I always tell those individuals, like, be proud of who you are because we are part of a community a unique community of three of over 3.5 million people in our country who have autism. And some of those young students don't know that stat. And when I tell them that stat, they're like, no, seriously, like that's our community. I'm like, yeah, that's how many of us there are with autism in the country. And there's probably more, you know, cause that stat probably could have gone up in the last couple of years. But whenever I mention, but whenever I tell them that, guess what? You're a part of this community with me. We're a part of something that nobody else gets to be a part of. Be proud of that. Be proud of your unique, your uniqueness, if you will. Be proud of your traits that you have because, you know, your traits will make you stronger. And and here's the funny part, too. And I've had this conversation with a bunch of my friends before. And they all say to me, they said, you know what? The autism community doesn't get the credit it deserves. And I said, well, yes, absolutely. I said, but why else do you say that? He goes, because you guys are some of the smartest individuals I've ever met in the world. He's like, He's like, there's a guy I know at work for all, who works in our accounting field and he has autism, but he is so smart with numbers. And I would always respond with, I say, you know, it's funny. I said, that is true. But when it comes to me though, I hated math. I hated math growing up. I was like, how come I, how come I wasn't number smart or anything like that? But my strength was remembering the little things. So for example, a couple of examples, I remember who, I, to this day, I still remember who won the first ever NCAA national championship in basketball. 
Who? It was, 19, it was 1939, the Oregon Ducks. 1940, it was the Stanford Cardinals. 1941, it was Wisconsin. And so I would do that, and everybody was just like, who remembers that? And, like, I remember my scoring stats from sixth grade basketball, all six games. And I did that to my roommate in college one time. He goes, how do you remember that? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's the autism. It's the autistic brain, man. Like I, I remember the littlest things. I mean, even my wife, my wife, Hey, Hey babe, what, what channel is, uh, what channel is ESPN? 229. How do you know that? I just do. I just, do. but again, that's one of my unique traits and characteristics that, you know, I'm proud of because that's what makes me, me. So yeah. I always tell those individuals in the community, like, be proud of who you are. Yeah. You know, don't, don't, don't think of autism as having, don't think of having autism as having a label. You know, it's more than that. Yeah. It defines who you are. You define it. It defines your uniqueness, if you will. And we're a part of that for life. I love it. I, man, you said something there. I, I'm going to write down and take this quote with me, but it doesn't define me. I define it. And, and the mm-hmm. fact that you are defining it and you're doing it, you're bringing awareness, not only awareness, but you're like you're, you're bringing a new definition of what autism can be to the autistic population, to your autistic family. Dude, yeah. there's people that are going to go, I can too do that because AI yeah. did it. That's my guy, AI. Um, okay, so that was a perfect transition into the, to my last question. This is, this is the question I ask everybody. And then if, if you will... After you answer this question, just if just fill us in a little bit briefly on like your book, mm-hmm. um, the launch date. I think you said September 9th, but just tell us like where we can get it. And then, mm-hmm. of course, when I post the episode, I'm going to put that in there so that any of my listeners can go and get your book uh, when it comes out. And then, of course, your your website as well for what you do on on the bowling program. Absolutely. Um, but the last question I have for you: so, what what is the darkest hours of your life? So that darkest moment that you were in whenever it was, what's the gift that you received because of that? So, um, so October 17th, 2010, um, you know, um, so my uncle, uh, who's my God, who's my godfather, my, my dad's brother, uh, my uncle on October 17th was actually shot and killed, um, at his house. And to, to this day, it's a cold case. It'll, it'll never be, It'll never be solved. Um, you know, I, I think that's the one thing that still angers me and, you know, really, you know, saddens me in this day is that whoever killed my uncle was somebody he knew because whenever he would look through, you know, the peephole in his door, if it was somebody he didn't know, he wasn't going to open that door. Sure. We, whoever he opened that door for that night, you know, he knew that person. So that that's what saddens me is that, you know, whoever killed him is still out there. And, and, you know, they're walking a free as a free person. Um, but when my mom had told me what had happened, I completely, I lost it. Like from that day forward, I didn't care anymore about life. Like I skipped classes. I didn't, I just didn't care, you know, cause you know, physically I was here. But mentally, like I, I was checked out, man. I was done. I, I didn't care anymore. And I had the worst year ever in my life academically. Like I don't know how many classes that I probably probably failed because of how many classes I just decided, ah, I'm gonna skip out today. I don't care. I'm gonna I'm gonna sleep today. 
And it also didn't help either that our basketball team was so poor that year. I mean, we were 19 and 15 and we somehow snuck in the tournament that year. And so, but I was just, I didn't care, man. I just didn't care anymore. And so, so we were in a team meeting one night. And so, you know, I always talk to people about how coaches, I was one, one of the most intense individuals that I know, cause he's so, he wants you to be perfect in everything that you do on the court. Yeah. But when it's off the court. Like he wants you to put in every single ounce of effort that you would in the classroom, like you would on the basketball court. But we had a team meeting one night and this is how I remember this day very well. So it was March 1st, 2011. This was the same day that President Barack Obama had went on national TV later that night and announced that we had killed Osama bin Laden. So before all that went down, we had we had this team meeting and Coach Izzo came in. He was firing us up. It was the day before finals. He was fired up. He was firing us up, you know, finish strong before finals. Then we're going to come back this summer. We're going to, you know, you guys, some of you are going to take spring classes, summer classes. We're going to have workouts this summer. We're going to get this thing back rolling again. We're going to put our program back on the map where it belongs with the elite. And so then he called some guys out about their grades. Now, he wasn't calling them out to be mean. He was just calling guys out to fire them up. Like, you got to finish strong. Got to do this. Got to do that. Now, now, when he got to me, I didn't take it that way. I took it the complete opposite. So I stood up in my chair pointing my finger at him and I cussed him out in front of the whole team. Like I probably threw every single swear word known to mankind at him. And Draymond Green, who was my teammate at the time, who plays for the Golden State Warriors, you know, Draymond just looked at me like, dude, like, what are you doing? Do you want to be on this team? I mean, do you even want, do you want to walk out of here alive tonight? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? So Coach Izzo, to this day, he gave me the evilest glare anybody's ever given me in my whole life. He said to me, don't you ever talk to me like that again. You mean my office right now. So we go into his office. He slammed the door. He walked behind, he walked around me, just eyeing me down. He sat down in his chair and I lost it. I broke down in front of him and, and I've never done this in front of a coach my entire life. Like if we lose a big game, like back in high school, yeah, I would get upset about it. But when it came to my personal life, like this was kind of like the first time that I ever, you know, broke down in front of a coach over personal stuff. And I said, I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, coach, like, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, I don't know what's come over me. Like, I feel like ever since my uncle was killed, you know, I feel like that my entire life has been spiraling out of control. And here's the thing, like, I know I'm screwing up. I know I'm messing up and everything, but I don't know what to do. I don't want to talk to anybody about this. I don't want to talk to family, friends, teammates, like, I'm just desperate for help. I don't know what to do. I just need help. Like I'll do anything. Help me, please. So he got up out of his chair, pulled his chair next to me, put his arm around me, brought me in for a hug. And he said, Hey, Anthony, here's the deal. I know what you got to do. And you know what you got to do. I know what was said about you when you're five years old. I know about all that. So, so here's what's going to happen. If you stay on the path that you're on right now, you won't be here in two weeks in Michigan state. You'll be gone because of everything you've done academically right now, because of everything that's happened. So this fall, you'll come back for football and basketball games. But guess what? All those people who doubted you and disrespected you, telling you you couldn't do this, they're going to find you and see you in the streets of East Lansing, Michigan. They're going to walk up from behind you, and they're going to scream out for the whole world to hear, hey, everybody, look who it is. It's Anthony Ianni. And guess what? We were right about him. He couldn't hack it. He's a loser. We were right. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to walk out of my office tonight with a mindset you haven't had in forever. Anthony, I want you to be hungrier for success than you've been given, that, that you have been in your entire lifetime. 
at finals. I want you to do the best, absolute best that you can, finish strong, and then a couple weeks, you'll take spring classes, summer classes, and workouts. I want you to have the best year academically you've had in your entire time here at Michigan State. Basketball, you're going to be the captain of our scout team next year, and I need you and the other seniors to help lead us back next year and get us back to where we were. And that's what college basketball is elite. He said, oh, by the way, I looked up your graduation date already. It's May 5th, 2012 here at the Breslin Center. And you know what's going to happen on that day? <clears throat> you're going to walk across that stage. You're going to get your diploma. You're going to walk down a set of stairs. And there's going to be an individual waiting there for you to shake your hand and give you the biggest hug in the world and look at you and say, I'm so proud of you. And that person's going to be me. I'll be there on that day. But you got to do the rest. I can't do it for you. So get up, get up out of here and go do it. From that day forward, Michael, I was hungrier for success than I've been in a long time. Academically, I had one of the greatest, one of the strongest years ever during my time in Michigan State. We were Big Ten champs that year. We were number one seed in the tournament. We got Michigan State back to where it is, elite status. And then my graduation day finally arrived. And it was at the Breslin Center. I walked in, saw all the championship banners I was a part of. And I walked across the stage. I got my diploma. But a funny story for the listeners, it really wasn't my diploma. When I opened it up, there was a note inside. And the note said, congratulations, your actual diploma will be mailed to you on this day, at this time, at this address. Go green, congratulations, sign the university president. So I opened it up. I was like, well, that really just put a damper on things. I got to <laughs> Well, I got to wait a whole month for my piece of, for my degree now. Um, but before all that happened, I walked down after getting my degree, I walked down the staircase and there was a person there who, had sh who shook my hand, gave me the biggest hug that I've ever been given to this day, looked at me and said, you did it. I'm so proud of you. And that person was Tom Izzo. He had kept his promise. And so during the darkest time of my life, you know, it's like, you know, I always said that like Coach Izzo was, has always been a father figure to guys who are current and past players. But during that time, you know, and we talked about the big man, big man upstairs, that time and place, I think, was maybe my uncle telling him, hey, I think he needs a, I think he needs a little guy. I think he needs somebody else other than his family for this. I think he needs an angel on his shoulder right now. And Tom Izzo was that angel. Like he got me out of maybe, maybe one of the darkest times that I've probably ever gone through in life. Cause if that outburst didn't happen, if that conversation with him in his office didn't happen, like I'm not, I'm not sitting here with you tonight having this discussion. <clears throat> I'm not. Yeah. So, you know, I say all the time that, you know, there's a lot of great coaches. There's John B. You know, John Beeline, who coached at University of Michigan at the time, I have so much respect for him. You know, Jim Beheim, Mike Krzyzewski, Roy Williams, um, you know, Shaka Smart, John Calipari. I can go on and on and on. Billy Donovan, when he was up Florida at the time, Brad Stevens, when he was at Butler. But there's only one Tom Izzo. And not only in my opinion, is Tom Izzo one of the greatest basketball coaches in the world. Not only is he a true Hall of Famer, but Tom Izzo, other than my own father, is one of the greatest individuals I've known in my life. And without him, you know, without that advice, without that, you know, five to 10 minute, you know, talk we had, like, I don't have my degree. I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't make it. So he, he got me out of my darkest times. It, it wasn't easy, but 
just knowing that, you know, he was there and knowing that, hey, you can do this. Hey, this is what's going to happen if you keep going on this path. It really opened my eyes. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful, you know, to have somebody like that in my life. Amazing, man. Could have sent you away. Could have, could have been, you know, in front, in front to get, to get cussed at as a head coach, successful, one of the most successful in the world, getting cussed at by a player. It, that pride could have easily, he could have sent you away and been like, oh, come yeah. on, you're off the team. But he showed up for you by taking his office and, and giving you that tough love. Um, tell us about your book and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, so uh, my book titled Centered Autism Basketball and One Athlete's Dreams. Um, it's basically my memoir from when I was diagnosed to, you know, where I'm at today. Um, I'm super excited about it. It comes out September 7th, uh, this, this fall, um, and it'll be available everywhere. It'll be available on Amazon, Google, um, iupress.com, Barnes and Noble. So, you know, I'm just excited. You know, I know Indiana University Press is very excited too, because I signed with them because they had the same vision that I do when it comes to the book. You know, obviously every author's dream is to be a bestseller, whether it be, excuse me, whether it be LA Times, New York Times, just whatever the case may be. And um, so for, and then, so they're going above and beyond when it comes to the publicity, hiring, a, you know, hiring a national publicist and whatnot. They're doing things that, you know, they wouldn't do for any other book. And so the fact that they kind of have the same vision, the same you know, dreams as I do when it comes to this thing. I'm very excited. So, um, and so my, my co-author and I, we're already working on our second project right now. Um, and then my plan right now this summer is to write a kid's book because yeah. my, my mom, my mom and my best friend's mom, and even my wife, they'd always said to me, you need to write a kid's book. So after I finished my, after I finished writing Centered, I was like, you know what, let's do the kid's book. Cause you know what, that, that's something that I think would be really cool, you know, oh. not only for my kids to have, you know, and, and read their classrooms with, but I think it'd be really cool overall just to, you know, cross that off my bucket list. So, and yeah. plus I, I work with kids all the time. So I'm like, you know what, let's have some fun with it. You know, let's see where it goes. Kind of fill the shoes of Kobe too. Cause he was doing some podcast stuff yeah. with the littles. Right. And absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's good for you, man. Um, is there is is there anything else? So so let me ask you this: If my if any of my listeners want to get a hold of you and get you out for like a speaking arrangement, how do they do that? So they can go to my website, which is www.relentlesstour.com, and all they got to do is just click on the button on the screen that says "Bring Anthony to your event or school," and they fill out a form, and then the form comes to me, and, you, and they get to work with me directly. And my email and my phone number is on there too. So that's one way they want to get in touch with me directly. I mean, they're more than welcome to, but I do a lot of my anti-bullying presentations um, for grades three through five or not three through five, uh, three through 12. Um, Cause K through two, you know, I have a kindergartner, like I said, that that attention span is about anywhere between 10 yeah. to 15 minutes. So yeah, I, you know that a lot of those kids during that speed. Right. <laughs> so, so in my presentations are usually 40, 45 minutes. So grades three through 12, um, I do talks on transitioning in life with autism at conferences, universities, colleges, as well as motivational leadership talks to sports teams. So, you know, anybody who wants to bring me out and bring me to their school, sports team, college, whatever, I can do a multiple topics, multiple talks. So, you know, so relentlesstour.com is where they can find me. Well, Anthony, I've had you for long enough and I, I can't, <laughs> enough. And, and man, I got to tell you, you're, you're a great man. I'm like, I, 
I don't Thank know you. you and I'm not in a place above you. And to say this is really weird, but I'm proud of you, man. Like you, you're changing the world for so many people that need it. And, uh, that thanks for sharing your gift, my friend. Like, thank you. You're, you're a great man. Keep it up and God bless you. I will. And, and thank you for having me on, Michael. It's definitely been an honor and privilege just to have this talk with Thank you for tuning in to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed today's show. I would love to hear your feedback. You can subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcast or any podcast platform you use. If you or someone you know has a delightful story to share that I need to talk to, please email me at come towards delight at gmail.com.